Harvard Divinity School. Refuge in the Storm webinar series part one, Buddhist approaches to large scale and community crises, September 20th, 2023. Welcome everyone. I'm Monica Sanford. I am the Assistant Dean for Multi-Religious Ministry at Harvard Divinity School, which is located in Cambridge, Massachusetts, on the ancestral land of the Massachusetts people. I am here today with the wonderful editor and co-authors of this fantastic book, Refuge in the Storm, Buddhist Voices in Crisis Care, edited by Nathan Mishan, Jishin Mishan, sorry. It's kind of a tongue twister, Nathan. Nathan Jishin Mishan. Jishin <laughs> Mishan. Thank you. So uh, Dr. Mishan is the JSPS, which means what? J Japan? The Japan Society for the Promotion of Science. The J Japan? <laughs> the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science visiting scholar focused on Buddhist chaplaincy at Ryokoku University in Kyoto, Japan. Dr. Mishan is the editor of Refuge in the Storm, Buddhist Voices in Crisis Care, as well as this other wonderful book, A Thousand Hands, Guidebook to Caring for Your Buddhist Community, which you can see I use a lot based on the number of little <laughs> sticky notes that I have added to it, amongst other works. Dr. Mishan especially focuses their research on Japanese Buddhist chaplaincy, chaplain training and contemplative forms of care. They previously helped in disaster relief and hospice care. Dr. Mishan is also a graduate of the Institute of Buddhist Studies, at, which is part of the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, and the University of the West, which is where I was delighted to have him as a classmate for several years. So welcome, Dr. Mishan. Thank you. So I, I want to start out by asking you a question about your chapter in this book, and then I want to let you um, introduce your authors and give them time to talk about their chapters. But just very briefly, the book is divided into four sections, and so we're hoping that we can host actually four, at least three, but maybe four webinars as part of this series the first section is on Buddhist approaches to large scale and community crisis, and it has eight chapters. And we're delighted to have three of the chapter authors with us here today. So thank you so much for joining us, our wonderful authors. But I wonder, um, Nathan, if you might just tell us a little bit, you've got the large scale and community crisis. Part two is about sickness, aging, and death, caring for life cycle crises. Part three is about caring for crisis workers, Buddhist approaches to stress management and self-care. And then part four is about becoming a Buddhist care worker, training programs and Buddhist education. Could you give us an idea of how some how these parts broke break down and what part one, which is the large scale and community crisis care that we're going to focus on tonight, basically encompasses? Sure. Um, so first I should also mention um, the, a lot of the chapters in the book could could have fit in multiple sections or categories. Um, organizing, trying to figure out how to organize them all was a little bit of a challenge. Um, but with consultation with a, a number of others, I also saw 
Chunqing and the call. So thank you to her help as well and some of that process and the publishers as well. Um, but the this first section, again, the um, large scale community level crisis covered chapters that focused more on, again, these bigger types of crises that happen in society. Um, often when we're more likely to hear the word crisis. Uh, so for example, large uh, environmental destruction and disasters, um, and then uh, different community and society level type crises as well. For example, like issues of racism, gender discrimination, um, um, looking down here now again, um, but larger scale community crises as well. And we have uh, Jeffrey on the call today too, uh, who will talk about some of the uh, protests and issues that were going on in Hong Kong in recent years. And so these larger conflicts that can happen as well. Um, whereas the second section goes more into, a little more into the personal side of focus um, with these life cycle crises. Um, just briefly then, the third section, uh, as Monica introduced the title uh, for caring for crisis workers, but that also gets into the issue of when people are full time or for longer periods, especially um, on a regular basis, caring for others, caring for others, always opening their hearts up. Care workers, care volunteers also need care themselves. and. Um, how do we uh, provide that level of care, but also issues of self-care and self-preservation mm -hmm. for that kind of work? Um, and then, again, finally, the last section, a smaller section, but focused uh, a little more on the type of training that people could go through. If, for example, either if you're reading some of this and interested in getting more involved, what kind of training might you go through to get in a field like this? Um, but also some stories um, from Japan and China and different parts of the world of what people uh, in different societies go through um, to try to develop training for people in these types of fields. Yeah, because chaplaincy training yeah. looks quite different all around the world. And then there's also disaster care relief and volunteer training and lots of different ways to get involved yeah. in this. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So I want to let our audience know uh, that you can add questions in the Q&A, which if you look down at your little bar at the bottom of your webinar, you see Q&A. You can put questions in there at any time. We'll be curating them and we're going to ask most questions towards the end of the webinar. But if it's something simple that can just be answered with a text response, we'll try to get to it um, as quickly as we can. But go ahead and put your questions in the Q&A at any point in time. 
So Nathan, you start us out in this uh, book with your wonderful introduction. And I wanted to ask you just about one thing that's in your introduction. There's a lot here. I really appre appreciated the, the Buddhist disaster and crisis care approach with kind of these, um, I think it's tw uh, 12 practices, like these 12 principles for especially for disaster care, but for all forms of crisis care, they're so pragmatic. I really appreciate that. Uh, but what I actually want to ask you about is kind of a very particular thing that I think Buddhism contributes to this conversation on disaster and crisis care, which in your chapter, you make this distinction between the English language term compassion and how that is understood in uh, English speaking societies and the Buddhist term karuna, and I'm using the Pali here. Um, I believe it's the same in Pali and Sanskrit. Karuna, which is most frequently translated into English as compassion, but is slightly different from the English language meaning of the term. So can you walk us through that, what the difference is and then what, what the Buddhist term in particular could contribute to our ability to respond to these kind of crises. Sure. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for that introduction. And I'll I'll briefly say at the beginning too. I think this partly became an important issue for me, especially related to that third section of the book that I was talking about. Um, with care for crisis workers and any anyone in these care disciplines, um, because previously I was a little more in peace and conflict studies and um, interning with people from the UN and different conflict zones who were coming into our nonprofit organization, non-government organization, um, from all these places and listening to the stress, the deep stress that people held and then moving into chaplaincy as well, um, hearing some of the issues that people come up with at, as such regular care providers and then seeing sometimes shortly after going through all the training or um, not long thereafterwards, even just people dropping out because they loved that job, but just couldn't handle that um, constant taking on of other people's um, stresses and uh, suffering. So I, I think it led me to often think about what really is compassion and um, how can we work with that? And so, as Monica mentioned, the English word compassion, it comes from these Latin roots that more literally mean to suffer with. And as a Buddhist, and especially even going through chaplaincy programs and sometimes hearing this among other chaplains, oh, be compassionate, hold compassion, and suffer with. And I'm thinking as a Buddhist, well, our general point of our Buddhist practice is to overcome suffering, right? <laughs> so <laughs> how am I supposed to be compassionate? 
And so I think this led me to explore those issues a lot. But um, I might just pull up one little quote here from Analaya Bhikkhu about that compassion. And so he says, in talking about karuna, drawing a clear distinction between the realization that others are suffering and the wish for them to be free from suffering is important. Since mentally dwelling on the actual suffering would be contemplation of dukkha, i.e. suffering itself. In this way, the mind takes the vision of freedom from affliction as its object. Such an object can generate a positive, at times even joyful state of mind, instead of resulting in sadness. Thus, compassion does not mean to commiserate to the extent of suffering along with the other. Um, so he makes this clear distinction of the focus on more the hope and the positive change and things like this. And um, keeping that in mind rather than the focus being on the suffering itself, um, I think can also, I, I had felt intuitively that this might be a more healthy form of compassion, not just for me, but maybe for others as well. Um, but then I started reading more and more into uh, psychological studies on compassion as well. And there were more and more interesting studies along this way to um, at least begin to confirm some of those uh, suspicions and thoughts and that there are actually many forms of compassion. And so um, I, I won't go into too much of the details here, but one, uh, one researcher I talk about is Jamil Zaki and how he distinguishes these different types of compassion and in a similar way uh, talks about this compassion that reflects others' suffering versus compassion that is filled with hope for um, suffering to leave. And in his studies, how much there was a different tendency for nurses uh, in particular to burn out if they particularly focused on this first type of compassion versus the resilience and uh, longevity and um, general happiness of the nurses who focused on this latter form of compassion. And um, I think just briefly in Buddhism, we have so many distinctions of different types of compassion, different forms of Guanyin, Kano, Navalokiteshvara, um, this being of the embodiment of compassion and what all of these different forms of guanin mean, I think um, we maybe have a lot to contribute to further um, exploration of what these different forms of compassion can mean for care. 
Thank you so much, Nathan. This is something that I've also seen in uh, my, my research with Buddhist chaplains, not necessarily working in large scale disasters, but in all of the places where chaplains work is this distinct distinction between compassion that can actually bring about a kind of joy. And we're seeing that now in some of the psychological literature, that there is a kind of compassion that brings a level of joy and satisfaction with it versus compassion that is really more rooted in an, in empathic distress in the in feeling the other person suffering to the point where your actions become rooted more in relieving that distress for the sake of your own distress rather than necessarily for the sake of the person who's experiencing the yeah. suffering. So I really I really appreciate that you make that distinction and that it's it's actually showing up not only in the Buddhist literature but also in the psychological studies of compassion that are now emerging. So I want to I want to and there on your chapter, we could talk about your chapter for the whole hour. We could talk about all of our authors' chapters for the whole hour. But I'm gonna add, I'm gonna I'm gonna disappear and just watch the Q and A for these juicy questions, which are already coming in. Um, but Nathan, would you please introduce your three authors, and then I know you're gonna have a conversation with each of them in turn. Yes, thank you. And so I am really delighted and honored to be with these three people here today, um, all very special and do it, having done great work in their own right. Um, so first, uh, we have kind of going down my own screen here, we have Victor Gabriel, um, besides being a long and dear friend. He is also the chair and assistant professor now at the Department of Buddhist Chaplaincy at University of the West. And he is the program coordinator for the Master of Divinity in Buddhist Chaplaincy. And we have Dr. G, um, who is a PsyD, SEP, and NEDA proficient and a healing artist, writer, and public speaker. Doc supports intersectional BIPOC towards their unapologetic, authentic selves by thorough working with intergenerational and ancestral traumas through body, mind, and spirit. Um, does a, Doc does a lot of wonderful counseling work and speaking as well. And then Jeffrey Eaton is a graduate of the Master of Buddhist Counseling Program at the Center for Buddhist Studies from the University of Hong Kong and a certified mindfulness teacher with the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. And again, it's a pleasure to have all three of you here today with us. Um, so if you don't mind, we'll start today uh, going with Victor and in that order. Thank you, Nathan, and thank you, Monica. It's been such a pleasure working with you uh, on these books. I enjoy uh, the collaboration and I enjoy uh, the collegialship and the continued friendship over these years. Uh, I'm going to share with you uh, uh, some uh, PowerPoint slides. They um, relate to 
the chapter, they uh, may touch upon the topics I already mentioned uh, that I wrote about, and also they springboard to other thoughts or other ideas that I did not have a chance to address in that chapter. Uh, I'm going to share my screen. And just to briefly mention while he's sharing his screen, his chapter is the ecology of the Bodhisattva, so especially related to environmental issues, environmental destruction, and the, the issues and care around that. Thank you, Nathan. Nathan, if I go over, please tell me, okay? <laughs> Don't let me go. Okay, <laughs> sure. Second slide. So the scriptural sources for my chapter are the Jataka tales, the stories of the Buddha's uh, previous birth, the sutras, uh, which, you know, the um, environment, the natural environment, plays so much a background to the major events of the Buddha's life, right? Uh, saving the swan, the injured swan, the royal uh, plowing ceremony where he has his first experience of calm abiding shamanta, the deer part where he turned the wheel of Dharma uh, and his death between two salas trees, for example and also the lives of the many Buddhist saints in the various traditions, all surrounded by nature, in caves, in forests, in mountains. And, and one of the main themes of my chapter is this idea of uh, interbeing. This is a poem uh, by Su Tongpo or Su Si. Uh, uh, it's called A Gift to His Zen Master. The sounds of the valley streams are his Lord, long, broad tongue. The forms of the mountains are his pure body. All night I hear the myriad sutra verses uttered. How can I relate to others what he said? So in this poem, uh, quoted by, uh, in, in the West, this is very uh, popular because this poem was quoted by Dogen. And um, it refers to, and it draws the, the, the streams as a metaphor for the ever-flowing Dharma, the mountains as the stability of the Dharma or the immutability of the Dharma. And, and, there, and there they hide a secret, and that secret, once known, cannot be spoken. Uh, cannot be even explained because it is so transcendent. Uh, the major themes in my in my uh, in this work of Buddhism and uh, ecology are interconnectedness, interdependence, non-violence, uh, on the principle of not killing, not destroying living creatures. So that is not stressed in my uh, chapter. I didn't have time for that. Uh, the activity of the Bodhisattvas and our world being the pure land of Buddha Sakyamuni. And uh, what other theme that I wanted to uh, push forward more, but it would require more pages and more explanation, is this idea of taking refuge. Uh, Nathan's book is called Refuge in the Storm. And I wanted to make a push that also we can take refuge in nature. And I'll, see, I'll develop that in this talk. Uh, this other slide is about 
chaplaincy and ecology and uh, they are eco-chaplains and in their work they talk about being nourished by nature, being internet intentional in our interaction with nature, seeking justice and equity for nature, taking nature as a person, as a, as a subject and not an object and supporting activity, uh, activists and defining activists as care seekers for social change and seeing nature herself as a care seeker. And finally, uh, I would like to you to I would like to invite you to do a little beginning a new uh, meditation with me. Uh, this comes from the uh, Tishnahan community from Plum Village. Uh, there are four parts of beginning a new uh, flower watering, expressing regret, expressing how we suffer, and to ask for support. And in the first stage. Uh, how does nature uh, nourish us? The second, expressing our regrets and expressing how we suffer because of, of nature and to our support. Okay, so uh, if we can uh, lean back, uh, get into a comfortable position, uh, close our eyes if that is needed, if we need to, and just generally Place yourself into a meditative way. Think back when was the last time you were in nature. How that natural environment nourished you. Then move to how we have abused nature. How we have seen her as an object, something that we can exploit, abuse, and slay. How we have abused or exploited our plant brothers and sisters, our animal brothers and sisters our mineral and non-human brothers and sisters. And also expressing how we have also suffered because of climate change, the loss of shoreline, the loss of predictable seasons, the erratic changes, the dramatic changes. And finally, to ask support. Yes, we can ask support from scientists, uh, good scientific advice to do to change. But now at this moment, 
just allow your imagination or inspiration as you take refuge in nature. What would the ecology would like you to do? What can, uh, what kind of activism, ecological activism, you can do better? Reducing electricity, reducing uh, uh, meat consumption, recycling, etc. What speaks to you, allow nature to speak to you, allow your imagination to speak to you, without judgment. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much for that. I think it sets the stage beautifully for our conversation today. Uh, is this a, a type of practice that you do often or um, integrate into your um, instruction as well for students? I, I think it is way? something I, I did once with my student and that, now I'm sharing it. <laughs> it's still very <laughs> brand new. Oh, it was really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for giving me this platform, Nathan. <laughs> um, and with, as we move ahead with Dr. G and Jeffrey, um, I, it'll be a little bit more of a conversational format, uh, but, um, listening to their stories and inspirations for their, their chapters. Um, so next we have Dr. G here with us and Dr. G's chapter was finding the flow in crisis within the book and <laughs> I communicated with Doc a little before this, and despite just six pages, there is so much in here. <laughs> and <laughs> Doc touches on so many issues. Um, as Monica said, um, all of these chapters could easily be an hour of conversation in themselves. Far more than that, even. Um, however, I, um, Doc's chapter especially touches on, um, issues of racism, white supremacy, um, BIPOC issues in society, and I want to give Doc first the opportunity because there is touching on so many of these issues, but also um, Doc does a lot of work around these topics as well. And so would you mind, of course, I, I fully understand you can't get into any specifics of um, issues with any of your clients and things like that, but more generally speaking, can you 
speak to the uh, way in which these issues in your chapter connect to the work that you're doing um, in life and in your position. Thank you, Nathan, and thank you, Victor. I just feel um, even more in my body, so I needed that. I needed that trip to the ocean um, is where I, I went in practice. Um, and thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, you know, all these are just wonderful mistakes. I feel like <laughs> that we happen upon these paths. Um, and and honestly, like in the way with which I practice, um, you know, psychology I was trained in Western psychology. I have to acknowledge that. And I have to acknowledge that that is innately racist and innately um, disorder oriented, which is not with the way with which um, and the culture with which I come out of. Um, so I recognize that that is a part of me and I'm continually doing the work. Um, when I got into this field, I wanted to be an artist and my parents and family were like, we did not come to this country for you to doodle and write. <laughs> so um, the next, for me, the next best thing was to do anything that had to do with the heart. Um, and that's what I thought this field was about when I got into it. Um, so for me, it's about being whole people. Um, and I'm, you know, one could say disadvantaged or one could say fortunate to have chosen this um, body of being um, 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 otherwise undesirable, um, probably worldwide and unprotected worldwide about being non-binary, still being in a female body, being black, um, specific black, but just generally black and therefore a currency for most of this world. Um, and I find tremendous joy in it. <laughs> so um, I, I use that. I use that um, that choosing as um, an opportunity to share with others just my journey um, and just my heart, and um, helping them remind themselves that there are obstacles to us actually seeing the totality of ourselves and integrating that. Um, but there could be tremendous joy in suffering, and so um, that's the work that I do. Um, I'm really not a psychobabble being. <laughs> um, I'm really about like, what is what is your full expression? And so it just so happens then that the people who come to me um, might be of the global majority, uh, might be queer on some spectrum, um, might be the fringe of the fringe. Um, I think I just have a penchant for attracting those peoples. And so um, we all have internalized stuff. So I think a lot of what I do with people is I'm, um, be, be, be transparent. I'm like, I'm also doing the work with you. And I've, and this is how I'm showing up. And there's always a way with which I can, I can hold all of myself in the presence of even a space where I'm only allowed to be this much of myself. Um, and um, deep listening and witnessing. I mean, it's so in some ways, it's so simple. Um, and to not be distracted and really holding people's light um, and their vision, you know, people do express to me what their vision of liberation is. And I just, I just hold that. Um, and I use humor and I'm like, you, don't forget, you know, like, you know, the ways with which we hide from seeing our own brilliance, right? We, we all do this in some ways. And so um, that's a lot of what I do and a lot of, and it's, and it's transitioning as it always is. And, um, but getting people uncomfortable with the discomfort and within themselves so that um, brilliance can be is really what I do. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I 
Another interesting and cool part of your chapter I found um, was it's in some ways, it, it's not explicit, but deep connection to the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> and it, of course, in Buddhism, we have these Four Noble Truths of there being suffering, dukkha, and there being an or an origin to that through its exploration and also a cessation and or at least in some many cases at least a lowering even if not full cessation um but also that path to get there and the chapter is basically structured right along those lines <laughs> and um there is one um, really nice point at the fulcrum of that. And would you, would you mind reading that, or do you have that with you for the flow? Yeah, I do. On the flow? It's actually, what I was going to select. I won't read the whole section. Uh, but I'll pick okay. that. Yeah. Um, so this is a section from the flow. In order to achieve a sense of freedom a freedom beyond any law or rule of humans, we must free the mind. It is a path of spiritual warriorship to deeply befriend this human experience, while also remembering that our essence expands far beyond the limits of our definitions or those imposed by others. We have been so focused on social liberation, on lasting change in social systems, that we bypass ultimate liberation the freedom of mind that sees the innate abundance and connectedness of all things. We have the capacity to hold and fight for both. Thank you. <laughs> so powerful and so beautiful, thank you. <laughs> um, and next, I also wondered if you might briefly introduce, following that you talk about the three doors of liberation. So in terms of more this path uh, to the release of suffering, would you mind briefly introducing that as well? Yeah, not at all. I'm gonna introduce it it's a little slightly different than um, how it's introduced in the book um, sure. and, and just kind of keep it simple. And also like, just, this is just what we do as humans is kind of, I find it kind of funny the way that we're continuously on the path of discovery. Um, I begin this section specifically speaking to, um, since it's my um, orientation, what I could speak to best, like being black as being a part of the Bodhisattva path. And, you know, these Bodhisattvas are beings that recognize their, um, their essence is enlightened and brilliant, and they delay their, their um, what do I say, their, their lifetime of resort, if you will, <laughs> their heaven, their however you want to call that space where um, there's great ease. Um, so that they can um, offer help to others who are still seeking their own liberation. And, um, and wow, that's like, you know, like thankless work. <laughs> and so sometimes I connect it to even just the work that I do. It, it, is, it is thankless work in many ways to continually try to do that. Um, but what a blessing. Um, and it's with the understanding that we're all connected. Like I can't do... And I can't be free knowing that you're out there struggling and suffering. I, just, I can't rest my head. And I think that that way of, of being is, 
and being continuously is it's just not um, it's something that we forget and we need to continually remind ourselves so that's where these three doors come in as reminders that um, there is there is a way um, and the first door being emptiness and, and basically you know we love our egos egos are not bad <laughs> um, and 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 also they can be far more spacious and fluid than they are um, and they they are everything all at once. <laughs> um, and so instead of kind of concretizing who and how we define ourselves moment to moment, like how can we have some loosen that? How can we have some sense of fluidity in the possibility of in any given moment arising as something else? And you know, so and that could be playful. I'm a big person of humor and play. Um, and so that if you're doing something for one second, that is your identity for that one second. So like why not why not take take that in? Um, so um, so that's the first and that and, and knowing that who I am is interdependent to where I am, to who I'm engaging with. Um, and that changes every minute. I mean, think about what it might be like being with your family. You're completely different with your family than with your maybe your friends, you know. So you're you're you arise differently, and that's that's wonderful. What a wonderful mistake <laughs> to have happen. Um, so so already you can sense, you know, and if you think about times where you had the space to be somewhere else, even when you were vacation, and what that felt like, you know. Um, that that embodiment offers a little bit of freedom from the constriction of, of our typical egoic mind. Um, the next is, is signless, signlessness. <laughs> um, and, you know, again, along the continuum of, you know, allowing things to dissolve, like understanding that things do, quote unquote, have an end, um, but rather that they transform into something else, you know, it's just, it just keeps mutating into something else, into something else, a self arising in that way. Um, and I spoke about this specifically about how, again, about how we form our identity and also specifically black identity is very much formed on, on, on white frames or majority frames, whatever the majority is in that space. And, you know, I would even wager, because this was a little while ago that I wrote this, you know, that, um, I wish I had emphasized more just simply focusing on one's interiority, um, that that in and of itself, like, actually expands the whole field from outside the constructs of race and capitalism um, and oppressions, which are really like the three lenses with which I am often defined against and for. And so even if I was just to attend to what's going on within myself, that that in and of itself allows my experience and my way of knowing to expand and transform to something else outside that frame. And the third is aimlessness. Um, I am <laughs> I am one of agency. Sometimes I'm like, that's my five-year plan, you know? Like, does anyone else have that where they are engaging in, um, in a grind towards something? I don't know what we're grinding towards, but we're grinding towards something. Um, and that could be really a really finite path. And it doesn't offer the opportunity one at that pace and at the pace that we're in right now to really um, notice, you know, like notice from a cellular level, notice what we are experiencing in every given moment. And I find a lot of people um, in my experience are always like, what should I do? What should I do? And they're churning to figure this out. And, and perhaps a question to contemplate more is like, well, what is life trying to do with you? What can you allow? 
And so that offers again more, you know, when I think about liberation, I always think about space, you know, and so an expansion. And so already when we entertain that, that question, we're looking, we're, we're opening our gaze onto the horizon to see what signs and what is life teaching me and showing me in this moment to inform what I might do next. Thank you so much. <laughs> Wonderfully encapsulated. Um, and I, as kind of a, a closing note on, in your chapter, um, but maybe also for um, our particular conversation here, uh, you mentioned Stevie Wonder's poem, As, or I should say, well, it is a poem, but a song as well. <laughs> and would you mind reciting even part of that poem as well? Sure, I will. I will spare you all. Like I am not a singer. Um, I really wish. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for those of you who do, do not know Stevie Wonder, um, brilliant um, American singer, songwriter, musician, record producer. Um, and not to be confused with Ray Charles, um, who is another genius um, of some caliber. I mean, they call him the genius, um, but they have since transitioned. Um, but CB Wonder is still with us. Thank grat gratefulness of that. Um, and he was a being who was born um, prematurely and was also born without sight. And one could say that that is a, a tremendous obstacle, but you know, our, we have other sense faculties to move through. Um, and so his life has, and his compositions have produced um, for me, the amazing visual imagery um, for not, for not ha having seen, if you will. Um, and so this song called As, again, circling back to my, um, my centering of heart and love, um, has a tremendous amount of dharma in it. <laughs> um, like you could pick really any one of his songs and his dharma, but um, just to read these verses. So make sure when you say you're in it, but not of it, you're not helping to make this earth a place sometimes called hell. Change your words into truth and then change that truth into love. And maybe our children's grandchildren and they, their great-grandchildren will tell I'll be loving you until the rainbows burst the sky, the stars out in the sky. Loving you until the ocean covers every mountain high. Loving you until the dolphin flies and parrots live at sea. Loving you until we dream of life and life becomes a dream. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh. <laughs> So great, thank you. Um, and thank you for that whole conversation. Uh, and so finally, we're going to shift over to Jeffrey and opening up. And so Jeffrey, your, your chapter was entitled this powerful image in the title, Lotus in a Sea of Fire, yeah. uh, the Hong Kong case yeah. in 2019 and 2020. Yeah. Um, and 
again, it a, a large part of that chapter deals with the these protests that were occurring in Hong Kong, and uh, you were in the midst of that at that time. Um, I wonder if you might start us out by just describing a bit, since media reports anywhere always only give us one little frame into a picture, but from the ground, uh, what was that, what was being in that like for you? And what was, what was it actually like on the ground there? Yeah. Um... Thank you, Nathan. Um, yes, um, it's very difficult for me to condense like the three or four years of experiences. Like, I do think the social movement, social movement right now is kind of um suppressed, but it's like a continuum, like um it transition to be continued, continuing in a different form. But like um, I just like why we we why rewind my time back to 2019 and 2020 in general. So I do have the same concern about media. Like I also asked this question when I had the chance to meet with my fellow mindfulness teachers in Ukraine. So I also asked them about this question. It's like um, how things that actually happened for you personally, instead of just looking from the lens of media. So I, I agree that sometimes media might, pre might present the world in a simplified view. So the reality can be more complex than quite emotionally charged, to be honest. So uh, in the initial stages of the Hong Kong protest, which started um, in June 2019, which is like uh, four years ago, I remember like walking through the streets during a large rally that took place in June. Uh, four years ago. The atmosphere was charged but largely peaceful to be honest at the beginning with an estimated like one million people participating in the large protest. Um, various groups were present, students wearing their school logos, professional insults and activists handing out flyers, even families with young children. It felt like um, a collective expression of democratic values. And the air was actually filled with peaceful chants and the waving of those um, cards and slogans. However, um, when the weeks, like as the weeks progressed and the atmosphere began to change, I recall that the incident on like July 21st, um, 2019, where suspected tri triad members of gangsters attack protesters and commuters in an MTR station. MTR station is a train station in Hong Kong. And the peaceful atmosphere became like very violent. And then um, it seems that the atmosphere also changes during the days when we have a large group of people demonstrating on the street during daytime. And during nighttime, it becomes a battlefield between the protester and the police. Um, Hong Kong is very special. It's like a very super condensed city and there's no way for us to escape from this. Like if I'm now in US, so I can feel that like, if you don't like this place, you can relocate to some other places, to other regions. Um, 
that Hong Kong is very special, like um, Singapore. Um, we kind of crowded and there is no way of escaping from this atmosphere. So initially the protest was like concentrated in um, business areas like Central, um, Causeway Bay or Admiralty, which are largely located in the Southern part of Hong Kong. But the protests began to disperse into residential neighborhood as well, and even reached the international airport, leading to its temporary closure somewhat in August, 2019. And I one evening that still stands out in my memory is that after a long day at school, I was still a graduate student at Hong Kong U that time. I was making my way home by the train, by the train expecting nothing more than usual commute. However, that sense of being normal was shattered when tear gas started to fill the station. Um, the air turned really thick, very acidic, and um, it's very unpleasant. The smell was really unpleasant. And if you have ever had a taste of the tear gas, and you will never forget how acidic that can be. And it, was making me difficult to breathe at all. And then panic set in as people scrambled to find exits, to take another train, and their faces um, became fearful. And there are much discomfort as well. It was a terrifying experience for me until now. I still remember very vividly right now um, that the reality of our everyday life in Hong Kong have been disrupted. And then it, this was really no longer the Hong Kong that I knew. It had become a battleground when even the simple act of transportation or commuting becomes very risky. And then this dispersion of protests around different areas in Hong Kong was kind of both a, a strain for spreading the message, but also a challenge because um, that create more conflicts in, in different areas in, in Hong Kong. Even the protesters and the kind of normal residents, um, they kind of entangled into a uh, very violence at sometimes. So um, besides very visible events, there is an atmosphere of fear in Hong Kong looming over the city as well, because it's kind of like um, there is an unpredict unpredictability and uncertainty surrounding the areas. You never knew that what would happen next and where. You may see police standing at every corner in the street and their actions seemed to be very arbitrary. And it's kind of adding to the sense of psychological insecurity and when I was walking down a very familiar street or waiting for a train, there was always a lingering fear that something could go wrong at any moment of time. That constant state of alertness was really mentoring, draining, exhausting, and created a collective atmosphere of tension and apprehension as well. And Besides witnessing the event and physically, witnessing the event unfolding on the news was quite distressing as well because the images was so shocking, like police using forces, firing 
rubber bullets at very close range and deploying water cannons against protesters. And each news report seemed to escalate tension and it stirred a complex mix of emotion within the community as well. Um, there was anger at the use of power, their fear for the safety of those on the streets and a profound sense of helplessness as well. One incident that still struck me was the uh, protest happening at the Chinese University of Hong Kong in November four years ago. CHK is actually my alma mater. I um, was a college student at Chinese U, a place where I spent years studying and building friendships. To see it transform into a battleground was certainly hard, um, hard wrenching. Um, the news I I I happened like uh, I was not um, there physically, but I kind of um, catch up the news during the midnight. I didn't really go to sleep. I I was watching reporters, journalists there, like um, reporting the event. So it was like an scenes of intense crashes between protesters and police in the campus within the. <laughs> the, the very familiar buildings that I was um, when I was a college student. So it turned into a war, war song, like tear gases um, and rubber bullets were fired and protesters were using Molotov cocktails, like they self-mix, uh, they, they mix weapons. Um, so they kind of use this to oppose the police. So it was really surreal and be personal to see such chaos erupt in a place that had been a sanctuary of my learning experiences. Mm. And I want to go on is how this thing really happened um, to become an emotional crisis in Hong Kong. Like um, the Hong Kong population experienced um, some secondary traumatic stress and depression. And it was reported by um, several um, studies as well. And I had the opportunity to hold some workshops for those distressed participants through a Buddhist organization in Hong Kong. Um, people came in with very heavy hearts. Their faces were imprinted with anxiety and despair. And many share stories of insomnia, sleeplessness, and constant anxiety, loss of appetite, and there is there was even no motivations to kind of continue with the very simple daily tasks as well. And they actually came from all different generations, students, professionals, parents, and even elderly members of, of the community. So I think the impact of the social unrest was, was really indiscriminable across different ages, occupation, and also social status as well. So these workshops were be becoming, were, uh, these workshops were, became a very, so, very strong social support and mental support to them. And the role of Buddhist organizations during that period was debatable. Um, on one hand, our organizations were able to do some emotional and mental health support work. We organized workshops and mindfulness and meditation sessions and community dialogues. So we aim at 
easing the emotional and psychological distress during the time. Uh, but on the other hand, there is a significant portion of the Buddhist community that has been absent from the discourse. Um, we had one third of the population who self-claimed to be Buddhist in Hong Kong. Um, the, there is um, the community, the Buddhist community is often perceived as apathetic to political conflicts, especially during time um, in 2019 and 2020. I do think it's partly because of the spiritual focus of uh, Buddhism, which is like traditionally construed to be um, inner peace, construed to be detached from worldly affairs. While this approach um, has its merits, it has led to some criticisms in society and society and the community calls for more active engagement from the community as well. So um, that pretty sums up with my observations in Hong Kong. Um, it went from physical observations, from emotional distress, and to the roles of Buddhist organizations in Hong Kong. Yeah. Thank you. And, and just to wrap up a little, though, you yeah. also had a lot in your chapter about dependent origination and the value of dependent origination um, on changing these uh, conceptions and internal perspectives as well. So yeah. would you mind just uh, a, a minute or two of describing what that idea of dependent origination meant for you during that period and how you used that? Oh, yes. Um, so when people ask me what Buddhism is, like my many of my friends are not Buddhist at all, and they will also always ask me why you got into Buddhism and wh what Buddhism actually is. And I would just explain that Buddhism is all about dependent origination. And my own very simple explanation is um, the phenomenon is always um, caused by infinite number of conditions. So it's my very simple definition of dependent origination. And it really, it really helped me a lot during the, uh, during the crisis. So, um, in early days of the protest, I was, um, I was of no exception. I was overwhelmed by emotion as well. There were anger and frustrations, and, um, I had certain expectation of justice and freedom in Hong Kong. To be honest, like we kind of enjoy very, um, high autonomy of freedom. Um, uh, before protest. And then it seems that the root of these emotions lay in the, um, the gap between expectation and reality. So one particular thing I still recall is when I got back to office, a colleague of mine had been arrested. That wasn't just a headline, that was someone I knew, someone I had shared conversations with every day. So there is a very, um, there is, it, it is really shocking to see reality changes very quickly. But then I kind of doubt, kind of um, take, um, think about this from a, from a doctrine of dependent origination. I began to see these events in a different light. I, I realized that my emotions were not just reactions to incidents, but was actually part of the uh, interplay of conditions and causes as well. And 
it's really transformative is because that um I can help and I, I understand that my emotions are caused by different conditions and factors. And I also learned that this phenomena happening in society are caused by different emotions, with different kinds of conditions and causes as well. This helps me because I do not find myself to be a victim of, of labeling. Usually during this time, during the time that emotions were high, I have a tendency to find a single figure so that I can point fingers with them, point fingers to them. I can have some entities, some objects to blame. Like maybe it's about the police, maybe about the um, political figure in society, or maybe just about the protester. Why are they so violent? So this labeling was some kind of a mental construct that I grabbed with. And then this grasping leads me to um, to the manifestation of emotions inside myself. But if I learn that things are composed of um, uh, different conditions, um, I will kind of understand that even the police, even the government, the, 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 the protesters are not just single entity there are different conditions that shape these collectives. And this helped me really dissolve the energy in the enemy image I had constructed within myself. It was just like a mental construct had lifted, allowing me to see the situation in a more nuanced light. And but um, to be honest, it doesn't really, I, I don't want to trivialize or gross over violence and peace and dependent origination doesn't work that way. Um, dependent origination is, is actually empowering, empowering doctrine. It's because we cannot step, we cannot um, label um, a human as to, uh, we cannot reduce a human to be human being to be a single label. It's because we are so interconnected, and my understanding of dependent origination is interconnectedness. So it is easy to get caught up with labels and identities, especially in a politically charged environment. However, this label adjusts the construct that masks our our wholeness the richness of our human experiences. So as the spiritual caregiver myself, um, we have to serve the community, whether it is labeled as a protester, whether it is labeled as a pro-government person. My role is to serve the community and recognizing that community itself is a web of interconnected beings, each with their own struggles, aspirations, and we all experience suffering, joy, fear and hope as well. So this kind of embodiment of interconnectedness has empowered me to serve the community more effectively. So uh, when I approach individuals, I try to see them not as isolated entities, but as part of a larger community that suffer together, <laughs> that suffer together. Thank you. <laughs>
Thank you very much for all your insights into the situation and the handle it, the way you and others were working together to handle that. Um, I just briefly to transition us from that, I wonder if we can go to uh, Victor again just for one minute and um, he'll lead us in a very short meditation contemplation um, as we transition into the final Q&A part. Thank you. Uh, having heard from these uh, wonderful speakers, um, maybe you can think of what resonated with you, uh, what touched you deeply, what uh, aroused your curiosity, what inspired you to act further, what kind of loving actions are you going to uh, carry out after our talk? And we also rejoice, rejoice in the good that the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have done and all the good that this book has brought, uh, this talk has brought, uh, how much it has inspired us on our life's journey. And we dedicate this for the healing of our world and for the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> And we welcome Monica back on. Well, thank you everyone for that wonderful presentation and for those lovely meditations and poems and sharing your experience, Jeffrey. We really appreciate that so much. We do have a few questions. Um, I'm just gonna answer them. Well, no, I'm not gonna answer them. I'm gonna pose them to the panel. Um, I feel like some of them are directed, but I'm just going to pose them as general questions and let the panelists volunteer if they'd like to answer. The first question comes from Jill, who asks, how does white supremacy in the United States and colonialism worldwide impact crisis care? And or how have Buddhist caregivers responded to these systemic oppressions while offering care? So if anyone would like to unmute and address Jill's question about how white supremacy impacts crisis care and how Buddhist caregivers are responding to that. So that question came in uh, quite early, right as we transitioned between Victor's talk and Dr. G. So maybe if one of you would like to address that topic. They can begin the conversation. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll just start specifically around um, you know, how the ground of these constructs start, really, whether we call it white supremacy or communism or wh whatever we want to call it, um, whatever the oppressive system, uh, system is, I feel like they come from the ground of a deep understanding that uh, there's self and there's other 
and the more that we concretize in our um, orientation towards other, the easier it is to, um, as we've seen across history, devalue, um, be violent towards, um, not consider, and also not and not see other as a part of. Um, and so when we talk about when we, you know everyone spoke about some degree of liberation coming from a space of understanding the inseparability of self and other. Um, with that kind of mentality, that wall there, um, it becomes very difficult to actually provide care um, and um, seeing that care is needed in these spaces. Um, so I want to start the conversation there um, and invite Victor or anybody else who would like to continue it. Thank you, Dr. G. So that it comes kind of from that mistaken view that we are all separate beings and from that mistaken view it allows us to devalue some people or even dehumanize them yeah. victor what would you like to add uh, uh maybe just this little piece on on uh training of buddhist chaplains right so buddhist chaplains that feel of buddhist chaplaincy has been very conscious about this uh and how um the effects of supremacy has uh, led to certain definitions of our terms, like we addressed compassion before, the, but there are many, many, many terms, even chaplaincy itself, and what is spiritual care. Uh, one of the, the steps that has been done that I've seen over the transition of my career since I started teaching in 2010 is the inclusion of Asian voices the inclusion of people of color's voices, the inclusion of um, lived Buddhist experience as, as opposed to Buddhist experience from the text, um, you know, uh, how it was focused on the sutra and now it focuses on the other baskets or other sections of the sutra collection. And um, that, that movement from uh, meditation and to uh, popular ritual, how people, how uh, Buddhists in uh, the uh, in Buddhist heritage countries, even that term Buddhist heritage countries, uh, deal with their issues uh, in, in 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 popular religion. So all that is being included. That has been very generative here in America and in the West and helps us rethink how uh, that indeed our uh, definition of spiritual care or health care or healing is very narrow. <laughs> and then it can, we can push the boundaries wider. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing, Victor. Just to give a little context, we did a survey with Buddhist chaplains in North America a couple of years ago and we weren't even sure how many Buddhist chaplains we would find, um, but 425 responded to our survey. And what was interesting to those of us who were doing the research, we didn't expect to find this, but about uh, between two thirds and three quarters identified as white. And there's some wiggle room in that because a lot of people didn't wanna answer the racial question. Um, so we can't be exactly sure. But somewhere between about um, less than a fifth identified as Asian American, and then there was a small number of other BIPOC 
and indigenous identities represented there. But that was surprising to us because we were familiar with the statistics on Buddhism in the United States that have come out from the Pew Forum and other sources that, um, you know, two thirds of Buddhists in the United States are of Asian American heritage. So why is it that two thirds of the chaplains are white? So we're asking these questions continuously. Is it because many of these chaplains also identified that their family of origin was not Buddhist, so they've converted to Buddhism? Were they familiar with what a chaplain is from their upbringing? Are Asian American Buddhists not going into the field? Are they going into the field and then being driven out of the field by systemic oppression and the Christian hegemony that still operates as an umbrella over the entire field of chaplaincy? Uh, you know, did they just not get the survey? Were we just not posting it in the right places? That's also, you know, that's also a problem as as researchers. Maybe we just weren't reaching the right people. So, you know, these questions are very much um, on our mind. But what I do see is that in terms of crisis care, you know, a lot of us are chaplains and we work with chaplains or we're caregivers in other forms, but in disaster recovery care, I see wonderful, wonderful programs being operated by Asian and Asian American Buddhist organizations. The Tutsi organization comes to mind. Their disaster recovery program worldwide, but also in the Asian Pacific Rim is an amazing example of how they are leading the way. And we can really actually learn from them you know, how how to take care of people in crisis. They have so much institutional knowledge at this point. So we need to keep building these networks and partnerships as much as we possibly can and learning from each other. Okay, I'm gonna go on to our next question. Rita asks, comfortable with discomfort, keyed in on that phrase, I believe in, doc, in Doc's talk. Is this a way, is this a way that you can bridge the gap between your true self and the sliver of self that must interface with others who maybe aren't aware of the path? And I would love to hear you elaborate on comfort with discomfort. Um, thank you for that question. Um, these are these are wonderful questions. Mm. Hmm. You're, <laughs> I have a habit of dissecting a question. So, so I apologize in advance, but this, this piece about um, might not, those who might not be aware of the path is, is so curious to me. Because um, I actually do think that regardless of people's affiliated denomination, that people, people know truth. Um, and people do see, and then there's delusion. Um, and so we, we, we create all sorts of smoke and obscuration for actually seeing what is in our reality, um, period. It doesn't have to be on the level of what we're talking about. It could be anything like um, who we, how we define something and what we, what we choose to see in any given moment and our psychological and heart capacities to be able to allow that to be. Um, and so I just wanted to, I, I couldn't help but I had to make a note on that, um, because I do think that that's the ground of, um, of, of any tolerance of discomfort, right? We're always met with difference in how we um, 
are experiencing our world because we're all different peoples of all different perspectives. And so even being able to listen to another share about a common experience, you know, like we all kind of quote unquote worldwide had had a common experience of some kind of pandemic and sickness and death um, to adjust and some adjustment, you know, to go through and we're all talking about it differently. And so, and look at what's happened out of that conversation. There's been, at least in the West, I can only speak to here, there have been these just hard and fast labels that have happened and then no conversation. Um, and so I, I feel like even just in that orientation, we're losing the, the ability to deeply listen to others' perspective so that it can fully, more fully inform what a full experience of anything is, um, whether that's of the self or whether that is of what we're seeing as being our reality in that moment. Um, and so, yeah, I just really want to encourage us to all, you know, um, work these edges of what we see as not um, or not unaligned um, because because then we're really shutting down what po other possibilities have been there 84,000 ways to, you know, awareness and enlightenment. We're, we're, we're cutting all that down to maybe 0.5, <laughs> you know, we're not seeing the whole thing. We're not allowing all of it in. Thank you for that, Doc. Would Victor or Jeffrey or Nathan like to chime in on that comfortable with discomfort? You know, working in crisis care, there is a lot of discomfort and how do we get to a place, maybe comfortable isn't even the right word, but maybe just where we can be in that space. Yeah, I would like to, I would like to add something. Yeah, it's like, um, and discomfort, I think, is common. The issue is like there is there are things and phenomena happening in the world we cannot turn a blind eye to. So discomfort, we got to accept discomfort is um is common. It's a common phenomenon that we as human in this world are experiencing. But being comfortable with discomfort is like by acknowledging discomfort, we have a choice to respond to it. Thank you, Jeffrey. Okay, I'm gonna add one more question and then we can wrap up. So Edward asks about the diversity of Buddhist traditions and thoughts and the diversity of audiences that we work with and wonders what are the challenges of applying one's personal background with chaplaincy work in this diverse field, both in majority Buddhist spaces and minority Buddhist spaces. So, uh, you know, as I'm, as I'm hearing that question, I'm reflecting on what I hear from college Buddhist chaplains very often is a college I hear from college Buddhist chaplains who are trained in a particular branch of Buddhism, and yet the students who come can be from any branch of Buddhism. And then the other, and then the larger student body is just majority not Buddhist at all. So they're working across intra-Buddhist diversity as well as inter-Buddhist diversity. Now that's a one setting. But I'm wondering in your particular settings, what what challenges with both Buddhist diversity and then inter-religious inter diversity are you experiencing and how do you deal with those? 
Victor, can I call on you for this one? Or Nathan? <laughs> I had a feeling. <laughs> I, I think after teaching, uh, you know, first go back, my background. University of the West um, has, uh, has many different Buddhist re um, traditions represented. And as well as having uh, those with uh, uh, other religious backgrounds or no religious backgrounds present, and and I think the 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 main piece I think doesn't uh, we don't talk often enough is cultural or religious humility. We just accept that you know. The Blessed One, when he came here, he didn't preach just three years, right? He preached, uh, you know, he was enlightened at 35 and he passed away at 80. So, you know, that length of time, you know. And he himself said, to some, I have taught a self. So, oh my gosh, he contradicted himself also. So then, <laughs> so we have to have the cultural humility that our Buddhism may not be someone else's Buddhism, but it works for them. And if it works for them, then it's good for them. And it's going to get them somewhere, from a place of discomfort, from a place of suffering, to a place of liberation. Yeah, and, and, and it's good for them. So that's the, the first piece. It's good, we have to accept it's good for them. And then the second thing is that, oh, maybe I can also learn something about that. That's some relevance to me and my Buddhism. So, yeah, I found that very helpful. And then you can also do, yeah, whatever religious path or no religious path. And I, I, think, that I think I tend to think like Dr. G. We are all on a spiritual path, whether we uh, subscribe to a name or <laughs> a named path or not. We are all on a religious path. And... Uh, yeah, so there's there's something that I can learn from from your part. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank you, Victor. Nathan, I'd like to give you the last word of this whole webinar before we wrap up. Well, I guess yeah, I'm related to that note. Um, I, it's funny, both in the context as an editor for this book and working with uh, different chaplains around Japan, uh, Buddhist chaplains around Japan, I, I, I would sometimes have conversations with people about editing, just little aspects of the chapter because it's something says Buddhism is or Buddhism says. And I'd be like, could we open this up a little bit more? Because I, I recognize that your Buddhism does say this, but this might, this isn't necessarily representative of all Buddhisms. And so there was, of course, um, it's very natural, um, whether in that writing context or like with many of the chaplain, Buddhist chaplains here in Japan, you're, trained in your tradition, your practice deep in your tradition, you go through that. And that's mostly what you're familiar with. Um, and so some of these assumptions about what Buddhism is 
is very naturally from within our own tradition. But that um, experience of really taking that effort to get out and learn about others, um, really break down these barriers and um, especially from a chaplain's perspective, it can be very important. Um, but I think in general too, uh, both for more responsibly caring for others um, to really learn about what these different, uh, what these differences are, um, but also um, for learning about ourselves, um, these kind of interactions um, with people from traditions that we might not be used to, it also creates some of the greatest opportunities for self-reflection as well, and brings up some of the great, greatest opportunities and questions about how we can really learn about our own assumptions that we carry and grow outwardly from that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to wrap up just by thanking uh, Dr. Michon, Victor Gabriel, Dr. G, Jeffrey Ning for all of our wonderful presentations. We hope that this will be the first in a, a, a multi-part series. So please uh, pay attention to the, wherever you found this one, we'll try to advertise it again, but you can also pay attention to the news and events space on the Harvard Divinity School website at hds.harvard.edu to sign up for the next one, which we are tentatively scheduling now for early November. And then hoping that we'll have the third one sometime January or early February of next year and possibly wrap up because four sections to the book, four webinars. Um, if we can get the authors to join us. So thank you so much. I also want to spend a, send a special note of thanks to um, the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation, which supports the Buddhist Ministry Initiative at Harvard Divinity School, which provides the funding for wonderful events such as these, and to Jonathan McCransky, who is, you can't see him, but he is here on the webinar in the background, coordinating the infinite, the, the 84,000 things the infinite number of things that have to happen to make a webinar like this happen. And he just does it so beautifully. So send your thanks and gratitude to him. And we dedicate the merit of all of these programs to alleviate the suffering of all beings everywhere. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Sponsor the Buddhist Ministry Initiative at Harvard Divinity School. Copyright 2023, President and Fellows of Harvard College.